Thank you for that special music. It's beautiful. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, feels like I haven't been that long since I've been here in the past, and it's just a real blessing to be invited back. Um, before I begin, I'd like to go ahead and start with another word of prayer. Dear Lord, I just ask that you would be with me now. Lord, please anoint my lips and help me to say the things that you would have me to say. And Lord, please let it just be your words that I say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So my presentation today is while you were sleeping. It's maybe not your typical religious liberty sermon. Uh, with my practice and what I've seen and what we've all been through, we've been through a lot, haven't we, these last few years? And I know that I've been very busy with uh, religious liberty issues. But as I've been looking at these things, and now we think, hopefully, that the, I've heard it said that the pandemic maybe is waning and maybe we can get on. Um, but, you know, they said we're not ever going back to normal. And as I, as I look at what's going on now, I see storm clouds on the horizon. And it's really because of that that, uh, that I preach this message to you today. Um, when I see the storm clouds coming, you know, when you see a storm coming, it's important that you take the appropriate action. And you know, the first thing you have to do when you see a storm coming is get your own house in order. And so I preach today, my message today does speak a lot about our own church. But I want to emphasize something. This is our church. And I'm speaking about us. And I'm not here to point a finger at anyone. And I realize that if you point a finger at someone, what do you have? Three fingers pointing back at you? And I hope that you will hear as I speak today that all of these fingers point back at me. You know, the scripture reading today was the story of the ten virgins. If you look at those virgins, they were ten Christians. We believe they represent the Christian church at the time just before Christ comes back. And you have the ten virgins... And when I've been to church, I've heard this parable talked about a lot. And we, we, we talk a lot about the oil and having the extra oil. And that's critical. These, ser these sermons and this point about having the extra oil is a critical point of this parable. But that's not what I want to talk about today. Not directly. We'll get to it, I suppose. But I want to point out the fact that all 10 of the virgins slept. They all slept, whether they had extra oil or not. You know, when you, when you look at what's going on in Scripture, in this part of the Scripture, uh, this comes right after Matthew 24. This is right when Christ has answered the question and given the prophecies about the, the, the end of the world and his second coming. And then he follows on with a series of parables. And I wish I had time, but time is so fleeting. I'd like to go through and just read each one of those and talk about how it applies. And it really does apply with what we're dealing here. And, and you're thinking, well, what does it have to do with religious liberty? But it's there. But anyway, 
he talks about the, these different parallels, and, uh, parables, and they all talk about the church at the end of time. They all are a warning for us as we come through the end of time. And I want to think about a couple of them in particular. Uh, Matthew 24. If you look at Matthew 24, and I really won't take the time to read all of this. I wish I had the time. But Matthew 24, Christ talks about this parable of the servants. And you have the good servant who delivers meat in due season. And then you have this evil servant. In verse 48 is where I'll pick it up. It says, But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant, when he shall come in the day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and he shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting, he appoints them with the hypocrites. So we know that this servant is presenting himself as being devout. There's a, there, there's a religious aspect to this servant. And yet he is appointed with the hypocrites. And then moving on, you have the parable of the ten virgins. The ten virgins that all slept. And I think it's really important you have the parable of the ten talents, which is the parable that teaches us that we need to work with what God has given us. Amen? And then you follow it on with the parable where this, the, I call it the sheep and the goats. Um, talks about how Christ comes and he's got people on one side and people on the other side. He separates them. And he asks this question about, you know, um, I was naked, I was sick, you never clothed me, right? They said, when did we see you? It's interesting, they both asked the same question. But the second group, they asked the same question, when did we see you like this, Lord? And the Lord says, well, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And that's the difference. They, neither one of them could see that they were actually doing it for the Lord. So that's the time that those are the parables that Christ uh, that Christ has uh, there, uh, and, and uh, if we just had time, we could we could look at them all. I want to point out a couple other passages in Bible prophecy that relate to our time. If you go to Revelation chapter two and three, um, and I won't take the got to keep moving through my slides. The problem with the slides is when you're editing your sermon as you go to speed it up, it, you'll see things that I won't speak about. Um, anyway, when you, when you get to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, um, you get to see these letters to the churches. And these letters to the churches we know are messages, special messages to the churches throughout time. From the time of John as he's writing, which is right at the time, right after Christ has died, right on down to the very end time when Christ comes back again. And when you look at those churches, they all have rebukes, except two of them. And the two churches that don't have a rebuke is Smyrna, which is the church that was kind of the underground church that received most of the persecution during the Roman period. And then you also have the church of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is 
the Protestant church that we see, um, you know, people argue about dates, and with these it's really hard to actually to, to pin dates down, but we'll go sometime in the 1700s to 1844, but I'm not dogmatic about dates. It's definitely in this particular area that you go. And, and I want to show you something that's there. Uh, whoops, got ahead of myself. If you go to Revelation chapter 3, you're going to see something that I think is interesting. And, and I would invite all of you, especially to these last churches that we know a lot about because we, we kind of live them in our own history. But if you study these churches, every single element about the church is relevant. Everything about the church of Laodicea is relevant to our day. And if you, it's the same with, with, with Philadelphia. And when you look at, at, uh, at Philadelphia, you're going to see in Revelation chapter 3, go back here, there we are. That should be a three. And verses six and seven, I want to I look at this. And it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I just want to look at one phrase here. He that hath the key of David. If you go back and look, he's actually quoting from, uh, from Isaiah. And um, you can see, what, what is that? I um, wanted to look at, at verse 12 here as well. Um, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And he will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of the heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. So you have this key of David and you have this city, which is Jerusalem. And if you look at that, this is referring to government. You know, you have the Hallelujah Chorus, you know, it's talking about um, Christ, the government will be upon his shoulder. That's the key of David. And if you look at the history of the world, you will see that the apex of good government, it occurred during the Church of Philadelphia. I do a whole other sermon um, about this where, I mean, truly the apex of Protestantism and good government, it occurred during the American Revolution. And it occurred during those few years as we developed the Constitution and developed, developed some of our laws and some of our freedoms. It is right there. But it's also during this time that the ten virgins go to sleep. What happens when you go to sleep? What happens when you wake back up? Everything has changed. And so I want to talk about some things that have changed. Um, oh, when the virgins go to sleep, they probably go to sleep. Well, they have to go to sleep during the Church of Philadelphia. And, and uh, just, just speaking, we'll talk some more about that if you want to catch me outside of this, uh, this, this, this sermon. Um, so so they, they go to sleep. They go to sleep, and during the time, things change. Now, <clears throat> immunizations, you know, that's been the big deal. Um, I'm not going to talk about that today. 
Uh, this, is, this has been a, a dead horse. Um, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I know we're going to talk about this enough, okay? But what I want to talk about, though, is when it comes to the immunizations thing, I started to realize, I'm like, I've, I've seen the problems that have come because of, of, of everyone's stance on these immunizations. And it got me thinking about more problems, more storm clouds that are on the horizon. And um, specifically, one of the big problems that happened with immunization was the stance that our church took. I want to emphasize, though, this is my church. This is your church, and we have a responsibility. And like I said, all those fingers point right back at me. And so I have taken some time, and I've started to look, and I've wondered what is coming down the horizon. And so what I want to look at today is some GC statements that have been made. And um, if you want to see them, you can just go right to the Adventist webpage, and you can go and you can look at those GC statements. They're all there. I'm just going to look at a few of them. There's a lot of GC statements. There's a lot of them, but I want to, I, I want to look at a few of them, and I want to talk about just basically some, some issues that relate to them and see how they may relate to religious liberty and some storm clouds that we've got coming. So... <clears throat> These are the ones that I want to look at today. We've got statements on poverty. We've got statements on abortion. We've got statements on religious liberty, evangelism, and proselytism. We've got a statement on academic freedom. We've got a statement on how SDAs view Roman Catholicism, a statement on stewardship in the environment and the dangers of climate change. But there's other statements on other things, other things I could have talked about. But these, I believe, maybe have something to do with storm clouds. If you look at the statement on poverty, who is uh, put out by the uh, GC Executive Committee. And you, you, I'll just, I'm going to read this very quickly. Uh, these are quotes, little pieces of these things. It says this. In this statement, it says that the working to reduce poverty means advocating for public policy that offers justice and fairness to the poor for the empowerment and human rights. It means sponsoring and participating in programs that address the causes of poverty and hunger, helping people to build sustainable lives. This commitment to justice is an act of love. Seventh-day Adventists believe it is also a call to live lives of simplicity and modesty that witness against materialism and a culture of affluence. I want to say something. Um, this is good stuff in many, many different ways. And just because we're going to discuss them today doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of good in them. But I wanted to point out some things that are here if you read it now more carefully. I didn't change the words at all, I just bolded a couple of them. Working to reduce poverty means advocating for public policy and helping people build sustainable lives. These words are interesting because it talks about an engaging in public policy and sustainability. And we know sustainability is something that's a big charged word today. And we might want to think a little bit more about that. This statement goes on to say this. Seventh-day Adventists joined the global community in supporting the United Nations Millennial Development Goals in furtherance of this Seventh-day Adventist partner. In furtherance of this, Seventh-day Adventist partner with civil society, governments, and others working together locally and globally to participate in God's work of establishing enduring justice in a broken world. Well, 
To understand that statement, you have to go and look at the United Nations Millennial Development Goals. Well, what are those? These are the goals they had. Eradicate extreme poverty and hunger, achieve universal primary education, promote gender equality and empower women, reduce child mortality, improve maternal health, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases, ensure environmental sustainability, and develop a global partnership for development. Now I'm here to tell you that many of these things are good things. However, I'm also here to tell you that this embraces a different worldview than the biblical worldview. And that is the danger in this. There is so much good out there, but that's not the right question, at least, and when I say good, I'm probably using small g, good. The question is, is this in line with our worldview? Is this in line with Christ's plan? Is this in line with what we know the prophecies tell us? I want to just look at a few of them. One of them, a goal is to achieve universal primary education. I think education is great, and Adventists have always been big proponents of education. However, what kind of education is being taught here? Is this a Christian education? Another one is to promote gender equality and empower women. Oh, I wish I had time. We're going to run out of time. Um, the thing that they're looking at, though, they're looking at uh, women in the workforce and women in parliaments. Well, that's interesting, and this may be all good things, but this is an open question, and we don't have a biblical basis for this. Reduce child mortality. I couldn't pass this one up because it talks about measles vaccination. Vaccination is always a big thing that the UN is interested in. And the other thing that you'll hear if you, if you spend some time looking is that measles actually probably aren't that dangerous. Uh, improve maternal health. If you look at improving maternal health, uh, one of the big things about that is actually about contraceptives. And, and I'm not opposed to contraceptive at all, but if you look at this very carefully, though, it's for people that are married or in a union. This is a different world view. This is not a world view where we have a traditional view of marriage. And one goal is to ensure environmental sustainability. Um, if you look at this... Um, when they're talking about environmental sustainability, we're talking about the carbon dioxide and all these other kinds of things. You know, this also looks at a different kind of a worldview than, than we have. We know that climate has changed a lot. And you can go out and you can go out and see in the world that, that you know, you look at the, the biology and, and, and geology and all this other kind of stuff. But we know it all happened in a 6,000 year period and we know things maybe change quickly, right? But the worldview that they have is, 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 is different. And it may not really be about climate change at all. Another one is to uh, develop a global partnership for development. And once again, the core of this agenda, agenda is sustainable development, which becomes a living reality for every person on the planet. Sustainable development in many ways is a good thing, but they are looking at it differently than we are. They are looking for a sustainability because they view the world as going on forever. But we know Jesus is coming back soon, and our emphasis should be different. 
Oh boy, abortion. This is another GC statement. One of the things it says, it, it starts off with this statement. It says this, human life is of the greatest value to God. Having created humanity in his image, God has personal interest in people. God loves them and communicates with them, and they in turn can love and communicate with him. I agree with that statement 100%. But I have a small problem with that statement. The small problem, problem with that statement is this is what kicks off our statement on abortion. The reason why I worry about this is because it implies that the reason why God loves us is because we can love and communicate with him. A fetus can't love and communicate with anyone. And this is actually in the abortion debate, this is a big deal. This is why you have state of New York doing things like saying, we will allow post-birth abortion. Because the philosophers don't believe that consciousness starts in the baby until sometime after birth. And one of the biggest signs that consciousness actually occurs is the fact that they can talk. And I just don't, anyway. Moving on though, our, our statement says this, consequently in rare and extreme cases, human conception may produce pregnancies with fatal prospects and or acute life-threatening birth anomalies and present individuals and couples with exceptional dilemmas. Decisions in such cases may be left to the conscience of the individuals involved in their families. The decisions shall be well-informed and guided by the Holy Spirit and the biblical view of life outlined above, which is that one I just read. God's grace promotes and protects life. Individuals in these challenging situations may come to him in sincerity and find direction, comfort, and peace in the Lord. Um, it's talking about exceptional dilemmas and decisions. 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 Choice. This is a choice statement. The church goes on to say, while not condoning abortion, the church and its members are called to follow the example of Jesus being full of grace and truth and to, one, create an atmosphere of true love and provide grace-filled biblical pastoral care, loving support to those facing difficult decisions, difficult decisions regarding abortion. When we talk about sin, do we have difficult decisions as to whether we're going to engage in a sin? Would we talk about any of the other Ten Commandments in this terminology? It also talks about how pregnant women who decide to keep their unborn children. That seems to get it backwards. A pregnant woman should be in default keeping her unborn child. Not having to decide to keep it. So what's missing from the statement, because I think this is important because much of the statement's not actually objectionable, it's, it's a little bit interesting, but, but here's this, there's no definition of human life at conception, which is critical. There's no condemnation of abortion. And when you have no condemnation of abortion, that means that you have no promise of forgiveness for women who've had abortions. Because if it isn't sin, there's no repentance. And if there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. And therefore, there's no promise of salvation for the poor woman who's gone through this. 
And this is why fundamentally our abortion statement is a choice statement, not a pro-life statement. Now, I have said some very controversial things in this last few minutes, and people are going to say, Jonathan, why are you here stirring the pot? Why are you here just mucking it all up? And what in the world does this have to do with religious liberty? Let me tell you something that is going on right now. Right now, the Biden administration is trying to pass legislation. It's drafting rules that say, if you don't do an abortion, you can't get federal funds. Now, right now, right now at this moment, if I am a healthcare provider of any kind of professional and I have a religious qualm about abortion, I don't have to do it. I can say, you know what, I, I'm not going to participate. Well, states like California, states like New York, and the Biden administration are saying, no, we need to eliminate that exception. And the problem that I see, and what, what I see is that this reminds me so much of what's gone on with the vaccines, is that our statement makes the decision to have an abortion a decision. And it's a decision between the patient, the physician, the appropriate family members, a pastor if you bring them in, but it's a, it's, it's a decision there, right? But if I'm a healthcare provider, we are called to honor the decision of our patients. And if the Biden administration or whoever is in power passes rules that say you have to participate or you don't get any federal money, where are we to stand? Where will we stand? And I feel like it will be back to the same things that we've had with the vaccines where they say, you know what? You can make a personal choice not to, but don't call it a religious choice. We don't have a religious objection. Um, if you want to learn a lot more about this, there's a very interesting video. I, I, I won't take time to, uh, to, to summarize it. I just don't have time. But um, the Loma Linda University Bioethics held a summit here very recently. There's a YouTube video out there. It's not really a video, it's just the audio. And uh, you can listen to what our healthcare providers actually think about this. And it's, it's a different theology than pro-life. And, and you should listen to that. And you can Google that. Um, oh boy. Religious liberty and evangelism and proselytism. Uh, this is a statement from 2000. Terminology sh should be used which avoids offending other religious communities. Statements which are false or ridicule other religions should not be made. You know, I do this thing with A.T. Jones where I, 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 I play Senator Blair and one of my other fellow attorneys plays A.T. Jones and we talk all about the Sabbath debate. We, we reenact what happened in Congress. And one of the big things that happened when A.T. Jones was in Congress was this argument with the congressman about, hey, we just think that if you do work on Sunday, you're going to disturb the other people. And so, so the reason why we don't want you to work on Sunday is because you can't disturb these other people. They have their Sabbath, let them alone, right? Well, A.T. Jones points out the fact that, you know, this person's going to be disturbed by whatever I do. 
And I'm here to tell you that when you do evangelism, you get to this point where someone's going to accuse what you're saying is false. And someone's going to say what you're saying when you're doing evangelism is ridicule. And so statements like these worry me. It worries me. It leads to, to the idea that maybe you could live in a government that doesn't have an absolute freedom of speech, but maybe has, uh, 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 instead of what we have in the First Amendment, maybe, maybe we can condone a government that says, you know, um, you can say whatever you want. You just can't say false statements or ridicule someone. Welcome to Islam. That's the Islamic world. That's Pakistan. And, you know, Christians go to prison all the time over things like that. Oh, boy, I'm going to skip this one. Theological and academic freedom and accountability. This is a very interesting uh, statement. There's a lot to unpack, but we just don't have time. How Seventh-day Adventists view Roman Catholicism. This is an interesting statement from 1987. Seventh-day Adventists seek to take a positive approach to other faiths. Our primary task is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of Christ's soon return, not to point out flaws in other denominations. We, whoops. We recognize some positive changes in recent Catholicism. Um, I, 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 I just, the three angels message. Read them. Stewardship in the environment. Um, 1996. Oh boy, these go on long. I'm just going to tell you that it's talking about greenhouse gases, global warming, um, rising sea levels, and things like that. Um, whoops. Uh oh. Um, I mean, listen to this. There are dire predictions of global warming, rising sea levels, increasing frequency of storms, and destructive floods, and devastating droughts. And then it talks about solidarity with future generations is discussed, but the pressure of immediate interest is given priority. The ecological crisis is rooted in humankind's greed and refusal to practice good faith, good and faithful stewardship. You know, when we read Great Controversy, Spirit of Prophecy tells us that these things are going to happen. Global warming, right? It talks about how Satan, Satan plans to change the environment and what's going on, you know? But I'm here to tell you, it's not because of humankind's greed and refusal to practice good faith and faithful stewardship. It's Satan with his final war on humanity. It's a subtle difference. And no, no doubt Satan uses humankind's greed to further these goals. But anyway, oh, we're running out of time. And um, here we got the Rio de Janeiro one. Um, talks about reducing uh, carbon dioxide emissions. They want to reduce reductions in carbon dioxide emissions um, to what, 1990 levels? Um, you know, our society is based on the consumption of energy. And at the foundation of energy is fossil fuels. Now we might move to nuclear, but that's got a whole bunch of problems. The renewables just don't work. And if you do the math on them, you end up with as much carbon or other kinds of environmental degradation. This is a war on humanity. Amen. And the other thing is, is that carbon dioxide isn't the enemy. But now I'm going so far afield. And I'm going to, 
it doesn't matter. Let's keep going. Let me skip that one. So why do I bring all this stuff up? Why do I bring this up? Jonathan, you're just being alarmist. You're just being political. The CBDCs are coming. CBDCs are coming. Do you know what CBDC is? Central Bank Digital Currency. The problem with the CBDC is this. Um, these currencies are programmable. And so they can be programmed to be used for one thing or another thing. And, and when, you, when you look at this, um, our freedoms are on the line here. And it may not look like religious freedom, but you know what? If you don't have freedom to go where you want to go and eat what you want to eat and do what you want to do because your money is controlled, you don't have any freedom at all. One of the things about religious liberty is that before you can have religious liberty, you have to have liberty. If you have no liberty, you have no religious liberty. It's like religious liberty is the absolute apex. Well, why? Why would our church even make these statements? Why are they there? If we understand why, maybe we can undo them a little bit. And the answer is, I don't know. I don't read people's minds. But I will posit this. What I've observed is this. We have moved away from being allergic to government money. Amen. And the other thing that we have done, certainly since the 1950s, is we have tried so hard to integrate with the world to show ourselves to be good, good neighbors, good people to be with. And I don't know why. I want to start to close now. If you turn with me to John, eight, uh, John 18, this is critical. John 18, verse 33. Christ is being taken before Pilate. And um, this is the little exchange that Christ and Pilate have. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called, excuse me. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, saying, Thou hast said this thing of thyself. Say, excuse me, Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest, that little saying is Jesus saying, 
Yes, it is so. Thou sayest that I am born a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? When I read that the first time, it was like a bolt went through me. Pilate is being so 20th century here. What is truth? Boy, my, my time, I think it's 10 o'clock I have to be done by. I want to tell a little story. I need to tell a little story. When I was in law school, I went to, I went to law school. And it's a three-year program. I made friends at the beginning. You, you really kind of make your friends the first year. At least I did. And um, it was third, third year, the week before graduation. And I was out with my friends, my law school buddies. And um, I had some friends that were from out of town that were there because we were getting ready for graduation. And we were talking and all this other kind of stuff. And somehow the fact came up that, I was a, that this guy was a Seventh-day Adventist, my friend, right? And then I said that I was a Seventh-day Adventist. And when I said that, one of my best friends in law school turned right around and he looked at me and he said, you are not a Seventh-day Adventist. And I said, oh, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. How do you know? How do you know I'm not a Seventh-day Who are you to tell me I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist? He said, look, he said, I know Seventh-day Adventists and you're not one of them. And I said, I have never spent any time with you ever on Saturday. He says, I don't care. He says, I know Seventh-day Adventists and you aren't one of them. And I went, oh my word. In my heart, I didn't have anything more to say to him. And I want to tell you, when I went to law school, I was a nominal Adventist. The only thing that kept me in the church at all was something that a, my French teacher at La Sierra did. My French teacher at La Sierra gave this amazing testimony about how she became a Seventh-day Adventist. And her testimony was all about the Sabbath. And when I was in law school, I did keep the Sabbath in some sort of a way. I wouldn't be proud of the way I kept it, but one thing I didn't do is I didn't do anything legal related on Sabbath. There were plenty of other things I shouldn't have been doing, but that was one thing I, I didn't do. Well, it gave me a lot of pause when that friend told me that. And you know, it was years I contemplated that. And by God's grace, something changed in me. And I wish I had time to tell you my whole story, but I will tell you this, that the thing that changed and the thing that made me a Seventh-day Adventist now, and I believe my friend, if I were to see him again, would say, no, Jonathan, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, is because I read my Bible. And I read it through and through, and it worked on me. What does that have to do with Pilate? What does that have to do with our church? While we are sleeping, some things happened. And I'm telling you, this is my church and I'm responsible for it. And all these fingers are pointing back at me. All these fingers are pointing back at me. But we can change. And just as my friend pointed out, had an argument about whether I was Seventh-day Adventist or not, our church can change.
And you know, I believe that Pilate's question is the key to the change because Pilate asks, what is truth? And you know, I just have this one appeal. I don't know what all the answers are. We as a people have to go back to Scripture. If we go back to the Bible and the Bible alone, to Scripture and Scripture alone, all of these problems disappear. Everything I read here, whether it be good or bad or whatever, it's not based on a direct, thus saith the Lord. But if we go back, if we go back, you know, when I look at the messages to the churches, you go to Revelation 2, to the very first church. This one really amazed me. It says this, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou cannot bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars and has, and has borne and has patience and for, for my namesake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have something against thee because thou hast left thy first love. When I read that, this is the first apostolic church this is the church that knew Jesus. This is the church where there were apostles there who could, were preaching to the people. It says, I saw Jesus, I walked with him. And yet these sad words are, I have lost, they have lost their first love. We as Adventists have to get our first love back. Amen. We have to be known as people of the book. And we are so close. At, look, we can lose it in every generation. Ronald Reagan said something about freedom is just one generation away from tyranny. Your parents' knowledge of Scripture isn't your knowledge of Scripture. You have to find it for yourself. And we are always only one generation from not being people of the book. Ellen White says this. But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only Amen. as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord in its support. Great Controversy 595. I just want to appeal to you. We've got to go back to this. These things have happened while we we're sleeping. But we got to wake up and we've got to use that extra oil. And what is that extra oil? It's the Holy Spirit. And where do we get that? Through Scripture. And so we've got a work to do. And I truly believe that if we do that, these religious liberty problems are going to go away. And I want to say the last thing about religious liberty. I want you to think about Paul when he went out and preached. He preached, didn't he? You hear all the persecution he got? Did he have religious liberty? It's funny. I say he did. 
and I'll tell you why. Because when you're right, right with the Lord, you can speak even if the heavens fall, and it doesn't matter what you're facing. And when you're right and you've got the Lord with you and you're doing exactly what he wants, a plain, thus saith the Lord, it doesn't matter. And that is freedom indeed. Amen. Praise God. Thank you.